from the spiritual side, working full-time in the pharmacy. Herb doesn't get as much discussions with people, but I hear many thank you and God bless you as I give them meds. They are grateful. Today we ran out of some meds. Hypertension is really common, plus we ran out of meds for tooth extractions. Uh, in, in fact, the pastor working with had a stroke right before we were here last time and had physical signs and limitations from it. Uh, most of the kids have never seen a dentist. Some of the adults have been living with draining abscesses in their mouth. They were so happy to have their diseased teeth removed. Herb was able to go to a wholesaler for drugs and buy some. It worked out really well as now he can communicate with the wholesaler by WhatsApp and get prices and place orders and then have someone else pick them up for us. Much thanks to Ten Strike Church because the money they donated purchased all the drugs that he purchased today with a little left over. Those meds will give us several more days of critical meds for our team. That's about it. Thanks for all your prayers from Herb Romanshakel. Also, uh, you should know um, that there is a friend that set up a GoFundMe page for Jimmy and Misty Wiley. Uh, the friend was reaching out to churches that Jimmy and Misty have been or are currently are associated with and asking them to share the following information. They've set up a GoFundMe page to help raise funds to cover medical bills for the procedure that Jimmy will need. Jimmy has maxilla osteomyelitis or a facial bone infection which requires a bone graft and restorative dental procedures. The procedures take six months to a year to complete depending on his body's acceptance of the bone graft. He is on a waiting list at the Mayo Clinic for the bone graft procedure. The funds raised will be used to pay for the bone graft and restorative dental procedures to follow. If you'd like to donate, uh, you can go to the GoFundMe link at gofund.me. Um, there's a number that I'll give you and then you just, otherwise you can search. It's A6A150E7. You can get that from me later if you want to. Otherwise search for Jimmy Wiley. Jimmy is J-I-M-M-I-E. His last name is W-I-L-E-Y. So if you search for his name, you'll be able to find him on the GoFundMe page and give. Once again, stay after church today for coffee, snacks, and fellowship. And uh, we're going to hear the word from Peter Coffin this morning. Let's give him a 10 strike church welcome. Good morning, everybody. You're so welcome. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer just for a second here as we start. Jesus, we just open ourselves to you. Yes, in your spirit. You speak to us through your word. You speak to us through uh, your, just your good life, reaching into us, opening us up, making us into something new. Every time we encounter you, Jesus, that's all we can hope for. That every time we encounter you, we walk away a little more light than you. In your name, amen. All right. So, uh, we're going to get into the word a little bit today that uh, I think if you've ever heard me speak before, that's sort of uh, my, my passion in life is to encounter the word and to walk away a little bit changed, right? Um, and something I like about the Bible is it's full of stories, right? Um, I love stories because uh, you could just tell someone what you mean, right? 
If you wanted someone to know something, you can give them a list of information. Okay, here's what you're supposed to do, this is what you're supposed to think. And then you'd say, okay, I'll just go down the list, here's what I know, here's what I think, all right, I'm done. But a story is a little more challenging, right? A story makes you think a little bit. You have to get into the mind of another person. You have to sort of exist in another space. Um, you have to have empathy, right? It's not just about you all of a sudden, it's about something bigger than yourself. When you encounter a story of another person, especially a story of someone who is uh, having a relationship with God. Um, it's sometimes difficult to understand what um, we're supposed to do with every story in the Bible. And so today I want to get into a story that sometimes I think we uh, might not always um, go to as one that's a big pick-me-up or one that uh, uh, maybe is one we, we won't always dwell on. But uh, recently I've been going through, I recently finished the book of Genesis. I'm into the book of Exodus, but I keep finding myself coming back to this one story in the middle of the book of Genesis that um, it seems to reverberate throughout the biblical story over and over again. Um, various themes and things I find just seem to call back to this, this very pivotal moment in the story. Um, and if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read through it for us today. Um, it's Genesis 22. Have your Bibles on your phones or whatever. You can open there and read with me if you want. Or you can just sit there and listen. And, and as I read this story, I just encourage you to um, try to imagine being there. Imagine the space. Imagine the emotions of what it's like to go through a story like this. Uh, and then we're, we're going to talk about it afterwards. So don't worry. I'm going to get into it. But um, Genesis 22. And you might recognize the story as I go here. Uh, and it happened after some things that God decided to test Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, Uriah, and the Lord said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, your son Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice on the mountains, which I shall say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two servants with him and his Isaac and his son and his and Isaac his son and he split wood for this offering and he rose and he went to the place the Lord had said to him. Now on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his servants, Sit you here with our donkey, and let me and my son walk ahead, for we are going to worship, and then we will return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering, and he put it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the butcher's knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his son, Father. And Abraham said back to him, Here I am, my son. And he said, Well, here is the fire, here is the wood, but where is the sheep for this offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep the offering, my son. And the two of them went together, and they came to the place that God had said to him, and Abraham built there an altar, and laid out the wood, and he bound Isaac, his son, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the butcher's knife to slaughter his son, and the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham! Abraham, he said. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, 
Don't reach out your hand against your son. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear the Lord, and you have not held back your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes, and he saw, and look, there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered the ram up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, as it is said to this day that on that mount of the Lord there is sight. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens, and he said, By my own self I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and have not held back your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you and multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sands on the shore of the sea. And your seed shall take hold of its enemies' gates, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed, because you have listened to my voice. And they returned to their servants, and they rose, and they went together. Good story, isn't it? <laughs> you can feel the drama, right? There's, there's something going on. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's high emotion, right? You can't read that story and not feel a little bit of something. Um, there, there's, something there's something great being asked of Abraham in that moment, isn't there? And uh, to be honest, when I've encountered this story in the past, it, it can be a bit disconcerting, right? Um, God asking somebody to give up his son. That, that doesn't seem quite in the character of God, right? Um, if, if God were to come and ask you to give up one of your children, you'd say, this is the devil talking, obviously. I'm not going to go kill my son, right? Uh, this, is, this is ludicrous. That's not how God works, right? Um, so why is this story here? That why, what are we supposed to gain from it? Uh, I know in the past sometimes we, uh, I've heard the stories uh, told and then perhaps summarized as, well, God is, is testing Abraham, right? So it's, it's just, it's a simple test of faith. Um, if I woke up one day and then I had that test of faith, though, I wouldn't just call that uh, a regular old test of faith, right? That's not, oh, my coffee was a little too hot or the traffic was, was a little busy. Oh, I'm, being, I'm really being tested today. Um, it's, it's elevated way beyond that, isn't it? Um, so I think there's something more to this story that is worth digging into. Um, in order to understand, I think, the full impact of the scene, um, you have to go back to the beginning of the story, um, which is the best way to understand a story, right, is to understand where, where does this thing start? Because um, the thing to understand about that story is it's not just sitting out in the ether, right? It's, it's, the, it's actually the climax of Abraham's story. Um, it's, the, it's the high point. After this scene, Abraham sort of goes into the wings of the story, and the story moves on to Isaac, Jacob, and, and Joseph, and it does other things. Um, so this is the climactic scene for him. Uh, and it's a strange scene. And so we're going to get into it, but we're going to go to the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean... Uh, Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of Abraham's story, believe it or not. Um, the, so the beginning of the story uh, goes like this. Maybe, maybe you've heard this. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and the earth was wild and it was waste, and the darkness was on the face of the water, 
and the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, maybe your Bible, uh, if you open it up, it probably doesn't say that the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the water. You can check if you want, it probably doesn't. Um, unless you're looking at maybe uh, an interlinear Hebrew translation. Um, so the word there you'll probably see is that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, at the beginning of time before there was, and God was sitting over it all. Um, now the Ruach of God, uh, that Hebrew word, is, is one of my most favorite things in the entire Bible. Um, the word Ruach, it means sort of three distinct things in English. It means um, wind, you know, see the wind outside, it can mean that. Um, it means breath, it can also mean spirit. Um, so usually it'll translate, what, it'll translate the word Ruach as one of those three, wind, breath, spirit, um, in your Bible in English, depending on the context, right? Um, so here in Genesis 1, we see it's the Spirit of God. There's a presence. It's probably not wind, it's breath. Okay, Spirit, yes. Um, in Genesis 8, you see that the, the Ruach wind of God is the thing that blows the waters of the flood dry on the earth. So that's more of a wind. Um, in Exodus 15, it's the Ruach blast of God's nostrils. Um, his breath that parts the waves for Moses and his people to escape to safety. Um, but really, um, if you study these things a little bit more, a lot of biblical scholars see these things, um, that the word ruach is a single idea, um, maybe best expressed through three different pictures, right? Um, the word, the, uh, uh, yes, these, these images, wind, breath, and spirit, they're all trying to capture a single idea. Um, and it makes sense if you, if you start to really just think about what those images mean to you. Um, think of the way just breath. Just feel, you can feel it, right? It's, it's physical, it's tangible, the way breath fills your lungs. Every moment of your life, every second you are alive, it's life. You can't see it, but you can feel it, filling your lungs every moment. Um, you can think of the way the wind, it's unseen, but you can hear it moving the world. You can see it animating, transforming, making things that aren't there, waves and the waves and the trees. It's, it's, you can't see it, but you can feel it. It's tangible. On a real windy day, you can feel it hitting you, moving you. And of course, you, if you think of your spirit, um, if you cut yourself open, if you do an autopsy, you're never going to find um, that part of your body, but every human being on earth, I think, on some level knows that there is something more to us than just flesh and bone, that there's something intangible that animates, that makes us vibrant, that makes us truly alive, and something more than just animals um, with brain processes, uh, making us do things, firing, whatever, there's something intangible moving us. And it's all the same idea, right? The wind, breath, the life, it's all a single image of God's life. Um, so really, when we say at the beginning of time, the Ruach of God, we're saying this single, culminative, um, very visceral idea of God's life, moving and stirring in the world. And we don't often think too hard about it. <laughs> But Genesis 1 offers us really a terrifying picture, if you keep reading, uh, of what the world is like 
without God's life. There's absolute darkness. It's, all, it's entirely unreliable, raging, chaotic waters, no rescue in sight. Just the deep, sucking maw of despair, darkness, nothingness, terror. <laughs> but when the life of God enters the story on page one, the first sentence, things can't help but change, right? At the very breath of his words, life springs out of certain death and destruction. It's a miracle. It's impossible. The Bible wants us to know that this is not how things should be. When things look the way they are at the beginning of time, it's hopeless. But when God steps into the story, he creates hope just by his very nature and character, because that's what his life does. <laughs> his very nature of his life is to build and create, make, and make things abundant and wildly multiplying out, out from himself. It's goodness and thriving at wild abandon at lightning speed. It's, it's a, when you read the Genesis story, it should hit you like that. Boom, God's there. Boom, suddenly, color, light, everything. It's crazy, it's crazy, it's good. It's, it's, it's hopeless to hope in a moment because God's breath made it so. And so in my view, I think if you start reading the story this way, one of the main purposes of the Eden story that follows is to show us on grand display just what the power of God's life looks like. What is its character? We're introduced to God's life, but the Bible wants us to know what is that life? What's it like? What's God's life's character? Um, and it's honestly, it's not what you might expect. He doesn't set himself up, you know, God creates this beautiful world. He doesn't set himself on some giant throne, right? He doesn't build a giant throne and sit on top of it as the God of the universe, right? He doesn't carve a mountain into his likeness, right? Maybe there's a big plaque explaining, I am God, I made it all, bow to me, you know, that kind of thing. He doesn't even sign his name on it anywhere, right? It's, you know, it's the masterpiece, it's his masterpiece, it's the universe. And, and he doesn't, you know, I am God, you know. We'd be tempted, wouldn't we? Somewhere, you know, Peter, just, you know, anyway, just somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe just one mountain. Just, just to say, you know, this is, this is mine, I made it. Um, instead, he picks up some lifeless soil. <laughs> and he breathes that ruach breath of life. And he forms humanity. And he gives humanity a special assignment. Uh, he declares and decrees that they are to be his image on earth. And that word image is perhaps one of the most important statements the Bible has to make about the relationship between us and our creator. You see, instead of signing his name, instead of setting himself up on a big throne, um, he made you and me. Um, he wanted to show what his power of his life looked like by creating us. Um, and by doing this, in the way that he does it, breathing into that lifeless soil, it says that the incredible power of his life is something that conquers death. And that death-conquering life is going to be expressed and represented in human creatures. That's you and me. Uh, that's who the Bible says we were always meant to be, is the representation of God's life that conquers death. And so it says that God takes humanity and it places them on a seat of authority, even. 
as the representatives of what his life is like. And he uses this royal language, telling them that they will rule and reign over all things on this world. Um, your Bibles might use words like subdue or have dominion, but the meaning is the same. It's a royal decree of kingship. And instead of thrones, he gives them a garden of supernatural life, a tree of life in the middle, and this is their seat of authority, is reigning over the very life that God has made and is. And there he blesses them and he says that they will be fruitful and they will multiply and they will fill the earth as if the life that God has placed inside of them, it can't be contained either when they're ruling and they're reigning. Um, the creation story never really ends on the seventh day. It continues in and through us as we fill and multiply over the earth. This is the blessing. It's the single um, blessing at the beginning of the Bible that shoots out from the whole story. This, this simple idea of filling, multiplying. And it's more than just, oh, they're going to have a bunch of babies now. It's, it's this royal decree of life spreading. It's the very nature of God moving through us. It's, it's, it's a very moving picture. It's very stirring. And it goes to the very core of what it means to actually be human, is to be a representative of God's life that conquers death. But we know there's a second half of the story, right? Um, there's another voice in that garden, isn't there? Uh, and that voice is the voice of death. And that voice asks them. It doesn't even tell them anything. It just asks a question. It asks, do you really believe that you are actually the image of God that you are the carriers of his life? <laughs> That's foolish. That's stupid. How could you believe something as idiotic as that? Have you seen yourselves? You're a couple of naked children standing around, helpless, worthless, and small. Don't you know that's not how the world really works? If you want something, you've got to take it for yourself. You've got to make it your own. It's not really your life unless you take it into your own hands and control that life on your terms. And so it says that they saw with their eyes that the fruit was good and they took it, even though they knew it was certain death. Now, I think this is not the end of the story though, is it? Um, I see the Bible as a continuum stories. And all these stories feed into each other. And like I said, I see this as the beginning of the story uh, that leads up to Abraham standing over Isaac. Um, so I see the next part of the story uh, of God's life overcoming death um, is that even though humanity chooses death in that moment, they take that fruit they choose death over life. They choose their ability to choose death over the life that was given freely to them, that was part of their nature. God is determined from the very beginning to bring them back to their true purpose. And so out from humanity, he chooses a man. And that man, his name is Abraham. Um, at the beginning of the story, of course, he's called Abram, but I'll call him Abraham for the sake of it. We can't get into the name change, even though that's important. Um, and he gives Abraham, at the beginning of his story, this bold choice. Abraham could stay in the land of his birth. That would seem wise. That would be the way the world should work, right? 
He has family there. He has inheritance there. It's a land. Uh, he has land there. And the gods of that land that he could depend on, which I think is an important fact that we don't always remember about uh, the way ancient people thought. Ancient peoples thought about their gods, is that gods were locked to the land that they were on. They were locked to the stone images that they were made out of. If you wanted to, your god to move with you, you would have to, you know, pick up that stone and, all right, god, we're going, here we go. You know, you're moving, you have, you have to move god with you if you want anything to happen like that. Um, and if you were to leave your land, you're leaving your gods behind. That's one choice he has. The other choice, of course, is he could trust this other god who's speaking to him. This god who's not made of stone, but is speaking through the very breath of life that's stirring up within him. And this god is calling him to something radically different than any of the other gods he's ever known. Uh, this god is moving forward without him and is asking him to follow it. This God isn't tied by any bounds. And he asks Abraham to follow him. And if he does, he promises that they will be bound together in a covenant relationship, which he describes in chapter 17 saying, I will grant my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. You shall be a father to a multitude of nations, and I will make you most abundantly fruitful, turn you into nations and kings, shall come forth from you. You can hear the echoes of the Eden blessing there, can't you? It's almost as if Abraham is being promised what humanity was promised at the very beginning of the story. Be fruitful and multiply. Be kings to reign and rule in the life of God. And they're going to live in a land of blessing, right? Just like Eden. Um, in chapter 12, um, God promises that they will be the source of blessing, or you might say the source of life for all the nations of the world. We saw that at the end of the story with Abraham and Isaac too, didn't we? Um, it's not just about Abraham and his family. There's this promise that through his family, God is doing something for all humanity. <laughs> He's bringing them back to their purpose through this man. So suddenly, there's this story about an old man wandering around ancient Mesopotamia, and it suddenly has very incredibly high stakes, right? It's the fate of all humanity is being put in the hands of this man. God has chosen this one person, right? He's saying, I'm going to do what I always wanted all humanity to be, and I'm going to do it through you and your children. And so Abraham has this incredible destiny placed on him. But he has a few problems, doesn't he? First, Abraham, he's old as the dirt itself. <laughs> Second, his wife Sarah isn't any spring chicken either, isn't she? <laughs> uh, which is a problem if the destiny of humanity depends on them having children, isn't it? Um, it would be great if, if they were just, oh, if you go out and you build a, a great building or a civilization out of your hands, well, okay, they can go do that. But you have to have children in order for this blessing to come to, happen, come to fruition. Um, the, the, that creates a tension in the story. We're supposed to read that and go, oh no, what are, what's going to happen next? What is God going to do? They, ha they are barren, and, half and having children is a 
hopeless situation. Worldly wisdom would say, this is impossible. This is, why would God choose all the people in the world, these two old fogies, um, to be the hope for all humanity, for God to reign and rule and show his life lesson? Why would he choose this impossible situation? How can blessing come about in this, <laughs> in this situation? Becomes, uh, what, uh, how is the incredible life of God going to come forth from a pair of humans who are as good as dead? Can life spring eternal in a dead place? And you might be saying, oh, that kind of sounds like the problem at the very beginning of the story. Hmm. So Abraham and Sarah decided that they must have a solution to their problem of their own, though, don't they? Um, apparently, they weren't aware that the God that they were serving was the God of life that conquers death and could do the impossible. But Abraham and Sarah are humans, and they are going to tell us a human story. And so the solution to their problem that they come with, with um, which I think is the crux of Abraham's story, um, in chapter 16 you can read about it, their solution is pretty simple. Um, Sarah's too old to have children, but they own a slave girl named Hagar that they picked up on their way through Egypt in their travels. And since they own her, any children she bears will be legally theirs, not hers. Um, surely this must be the best way, right? Sarah can't have children. She can. We own her. Seems like a good plan. Surely blessing will come this way, won't it? And the narrative doesn't stop and tell you whether this decision is good or bad or right or wrong. It's worth noting that Abraham and Sarah aren't acting in a way that would have seemed absurd to ancient audiences. Um, their actions would probably seem wise. Um, it's the most obvious, logical method of achieving life in this situation. If they're looking to gain the blessing that's been promised to them, this seems like the, the best solution. Um, you have to take it from someone weaker than yourself. This is just the wisdom of the world, isn't it? And indeed, it says that Sarah took Hagar, the slave, and gave her to Abraham. It's the same human story. But now, instead of something inane like fruit, it's people in the power of other people who suffer the consequences of the same human fall story. It's an uncomfortable story, isn't it? Um, it's the life of God is the life of God really going to spring from this family we find ourselves asking and if this, especially if it starts out like this this plotting and scheming this sexual abuse using someone in order to gain blessing for yourself and as the reader you're forced to ask some difficult questions aren't you about these people this Abraham and Sarah that God has chosen and this is how they act and you have to ask, well, are they right? Can the blessing be taken? After all, Abraham and Sarah get away with it, don't they? Right? Hagar does indeed bear Abraham his firstborn son, who he loves very much. His name is Ishmael, and they have exactly what they want after that story is ended, right? Exactly what they were promised. They have the son. Blessing is going to come, right? This is how God said was going to happen. And boom, we made it happen. And there seems to be this tension, doesn't there be? Um, 
this idea that blessing can, when the Lord puts a destiny on their shoulders, they have to find a way, figure out a way to make it happen for themselves. At any cost, as long as it's achieved, right? Because that's the most important thing in Abraham and Sarah's eyes, apparently. As long as the blessing's gained, it doesn't matter how it's gained. Um, and it presents this idea, right? What if the blessing is limited? <laughs> what if the blessing is finite? What if it's something that has to be grasped at and you have to jump through hoops to gain? And the story isn't going to pause and tell you whether this is good or bad, this is how it's to be done, but we get a response, don't we? And oftentimes this is how the Bible works, is you have to keep reading the story to find out, well, how does God respond then? If this is how people are going to act, if this is how they're going, what they're going to do, what does God have to say about it? And God's response to this very sober story, sobering story, is kind of fascinating. Um, he doesn't come in like a thunderstorm and start condemning their actions, or he doesn't praise their actions either. Um, instead, he, he makes a proclamation over them. Uh, and it's a proclamation that's hard to forget. It's, it's twofold. Um, first, um, and this, this might be a little uncomfortable too, I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. You know, if you're squirming your seat a little bit, it's okay. But at first, he calls Abraham uh, to be circumcised. Um, and if you don't know what circumcision is, feel free to uh, ask a trusted friend after the service. I won't explain it here. I'll take it for granted that we're, we're kind of on the same page a little bit about what circumcision is. Um, and this is the first time in the Bible that circumcision is ever mentioned. Right after the Hagar story, they've abused their slave, they've taken advantage of her, they've gotten their child that they wanted. They're going to have the blessing. Uh, and then God responds like this. He says, Abraham, I want you to be circumcised. Um, it's the first time it's mentioned, and its origin is rooted here, then, as a response to that abuse of Hagar in the previous story. And it says that the, um, the procedure uh, will be, quote, an everlasting covenant between God and man, God and Abraham, and it'll be an everlasting covenant in his flesh, it says. Uh, which makes, that, that's a pretty clear message for someone, isn't it? Um, to, uh, you can write something out for someone when you make a message in your flesh. Um, you're going to remember that. Uh, and, you know, you kind of have to laugh a little bit. Um, Abraham being told that uh, circumcision will be an everlasting covenant. It's, no, duh, God, I don't think we're undoing this one. <laughs> I think that's going to last, God. Uh, that'll do it. Um, but here's the deal with the circumcision scene. Is... The very part, uh, it's this message, I think. It says, the very part of your body that I have called out to be the source of my life and the blessing for all the world, as we have just seen with Hagar, can also be the very same thing that humanity can choose to bring death and darkness, violence and chaos into the world. And so I'm setting a reminder for you in that very same place that my blessing, my not life, is not some finite resource that has to be hoarded or grasped at or fought over. You will never have to abuse another person in order to gain my life. I give it freely and I give it in my power, not through human wisdom, but through your trust in me and using my methods which defy any voice that whispers that I'm not good and that I will not do what I have promised. 
And to prove it, he makes a second proclamation, doesn't he? He turns from Abraham, looks at Sarah, and he says, you too I claim for my purposes, and I choose to show the power of my life against all odds, against death itself. And he declares that dead womb of Sarah will be the home to the life of a child. And it's the second child, he says, who will receive that great destiny of blessing and life to become what humanity was always meant to be. And it happens as God says it would. And they do indeed bear that miracle child, and that child's name, of course, is Isaac. So that takes us back to that climactic scene, right? At the very beginning, we read, um, now we have Isaac, don't we? Um, and so when we follow that thread of the story, that story of humanity and God seeking out, what is, how is he going to see his life fulfilled in us? How are we going to be that representative of his life that defeats death itself? I think we see a little clearer how high those stakes are then when we get to the point where Abraham is standing over Isaac with a meat cleaver ready to chop down. There's a lot of emotional turmoil that's going to fill that scene, isn't there? Abraham and Isaac suddenly aren't just some father, some son, some guy, some kid. He's not going through just any average test of faith. This is the culmination not just of Abraham's story, but of the human story that Genesis is telling. And the Bible truly builds up from page one, right up, that triumphant moment of Isaac's birth. It's this, this tension, right? It's how are we going, you know, humanity has uh, taken death into itself. How is God's life going to come through? God promises, I'm going to do it through your children. And it seems like death is going to win, but no, there's that miracle. Oh, Isaac, defeating death. It's, it's like Genesis. It's like the creation story all over again. It's, God's breath of life coming into that dark world and making something out of nothing. And it seems like that should be the end, almost the end of the story, right? But then right after, it's right after Isaac is born, we get this story. So we see um, that Isaac is life then. It represents the assurance of God's life taking victory over death and the promise that one day all humanity again will be restored to the eternal life in that Eden blessing, filling, multiplying, ruling, reigning with God forever. Isaac is the hope for Abraham in the scene, but he's also the hope for all mankind, I think. Um, so if, so the tension becomes, as, as he's told, you're going to have to sacrifice Isaac. Um, Suddenly we have a lot of questions, don't we, when we built up a story this way. If Isaac dies, then the hope for all humanity and its destiny that was promised through him dies with him. And not only that, but it also kills the very relationship between God and humanity, doesn't it? Because Isaac is part of God's promise. And if God's promise is broken there, then everything falls to shambles. There's no point being human at all, because the very purpose of being human is to know God's life. And so if we can't do that, what good is any of it? And this story is meant to be read then. It's edge of your seat. How, is, how are we going to resolve this? It's almost apocalyptic. <laughs> it's life and death of everything, not just Isaac on the line. And so in that same line of thinking, I really believe that this moment isn't, a, isn't about God playing a mean trick on Abraham. <laughs> Um, he's not trying to make him sweat it out of him. 
prove how loyal he really is. Um, I think this story is meant to be read so that we understand something. It's meant for us. It's about that image itself, Abraham looming over Isaac, its death threatening to snuff out life. And I don't think it's any mistake that we get that same Eden language in that scene. It makes, it, it makes a really special note about how Abraham is reaching out with his hand, taking the knife, just like the apple, just like Hagar was taking, taking, taking his son, he's going to slaughter the son of life itself. And that image sort of burns in your memory. It's a famous scene. It's something that most people, even if they're not Christian, they're, they're somehow aware of that picture. And I think it makes this claim, and, uh, and I think it makes this claim all the more, the more you read the biblical story, um, the more you sort of just sit with this scene, and the more I've sat with this scene, I think it makes this claim. Um, this image of death about to snuff out life, about the father about to destroy the son of hope, <laughs> the hope for all humanity, is what it actually looks like when we try to take that blessing for ourselves. When we shrug our shoulders and submit to what we see as just the natural system of the world, we say, well, that's just the way it is. How could I believe for anything better? It's all corrupt. It's all going to pot. It's just the way it is. If we think anyone has ever gained anything by violence and oppression, through sin or depravity, through worldly wisdom, we're just fooling ourselves. Apart from God's life, there is nothing. Everything else is, count, is as counterintuitive as murdering the only son, your only son of humanity's hope. Um, yeah. And that's something I, I've just really, really been thinking about, is this idea that sometimes uh, we look at the world and somehow we think they're getting away with something. Sometimes we almost believe that the way, the way the world works is going, on some level, to win. That somehow death will win out. And we have little fears, little doubts, little concerns, don't we, about when we look out at the world and we see the way things are working. Um, and I think we don't need to have those truths. I don't think we need to let ourselves be troubled. Because I think truly the biblical story paints out for us that, in truth, when we don't act in anything else, in anything other but the life, the very life of God, the very purpose of what it was meant to be human, it's as good as destroying life itself. <laughs> it's as good as letting the flood come up and just destroy all the world. It's killing ourselves. Um, we get away with nothing, I guess is what I have to say about that. Um, and this picture, I think, really hits it home, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's counterintuitive, it's pointless. It, it's, it's not something anybody would ever choose to do if they saw it for what it was. And I think that's what the Bible helps us do, is it helps us see what it actually means to be human and what we're actually doing when we think we're taking something, right? Because the reason people do things in the world is because they think they're benefiting they think they're going to gain some life. They think they're going to desperately grab one little bit of success, one little bit of hope, one little bit of life for themselves in this world. But all it's really doing is sowing death and destruction, but it's not from the God of life himself. 
right? Right. Um, so the end of the story, it's dramatic. It touches to the very core of what it means to be human. It's not just Abraham and Isaac alone on a mountaintop. Because there's also that sacrificial lamb there, isn't it? And that sacrificial lamb, I think, is very, very important here. Um, and Abraham really summarizes things really well when he says, it'll be God himself who sees to supplying that lamb, right? So the story ends not with humanity giving up all this life and hope, but instead it's the lamb of God himself who gives up his life for us. And it's this distinction I think I want to make clear here, and I think this is the thing um, that's really been sitting with me about the image of this story. Um, and why this thing has been striking home with me, arresting me, and whenever I dwell on it, I feel a little bit affected. Uh, it grips my heart just a little bit. It changes me, I think, a little bit when I think of this story and I think of that lamb. Because um, often when we tell this story, it's in terms of Abraham, maybe, having to prove that he was willing, what he was willing to give up, right? Abraham was willing to give up his son. And maybe that's how we think of this story. Um, but I have this conviction that there's this bigger story going on. Um, the lamb is God's own life placed there for Abraham. Um, that lamb is a lamb is a life that God, his ruach breath, was living in, was surviving in, was created for that moment. It was provided by God Himself, and that life is given so that Isaac and all humanity can live afterwards. And he commends Abraham not holding back his son, because this is always what is at stake in the human story. Um, will we see life as a thing that must be earned, taken, something we must own and hold on to for ourselves, even when in reality, the very act of doing so, we partner with death? Or will we recognize true life as the person of God himself? The only way to, to gain it is to know him, to trust him and to recognize ourselves as the carriers of that life, not just for the benefit of ourselves, but for the whole world. And so I'm just gonna finish here a little bit. Um, I was thinking about this story. I was reminded of, uh, no, no many of us were at, um, the March for Jesus, right? Um, we were gathered together, we were singing, we were praising, and we were just declaring that Jesus was king over our community. Um, but there was another voice there. Um, uh, Kaylee, in particular, <laughs> got to hear this voice. Um, I think Joy, too, was there. And there was, there was a man who was walking up and down on the sidewalk up above, uh, up above where we were worshiping, and he was yelling and screaming, and, and, and what he was yelling and screaming about was um, essentially this message that your, your prayers aren't good enough, your worship is worthless, what, you're wasting your time sitting here and trying to, and, and asking and acting all nice and Christian-like. Uh, instead, you've got to take, if you want to change anything in this world, if you want to do something, you've got to you gotta do what I'm doing. You have to be yelling on the street. You gotta get angry. You gotta take it into your own hands. Um, and I think about that guy sometimes. And I think, from a worldly standpoint, um, you might be right, right? 
oh, I, I suppose the only way to get anything done is you have to work with, uh, it's a corrupt system, right? And every, the whole world is full of corruption and darkness and death, so you have to just take it head on and, and work in the same way that they do. You have to fight fire with fire. Um, and I guess when I read this story, when I read the story of this Bible, uh, I'm convinced that everything that's going on in this scene with Abraham standing over Isaac is all just a preface for another man, right? It's all just a preface for the man we know as Jesus. And Jesus was both things, wasn't he? He was the son of man. He was the hope of all humanity. He was the very life of humanity himself. But he was also that lamb of God. He was that life of God infused into both, right? The life of man and the life of God in one place, one body, one person. And so when Jesus lays himself on that altar and humanity takes that life. Death can't win. Death does not conquer in that story because the life of God, when it's combined with the life of humanity, creates a place where both survive. And so Jesus rises again. And it's not just Jesus' spirit. It's Jesus himself. He comes and the disciples get to touch him. It's the life of God and the life of man eternal. It's what we were always meant to be and Jesus says that what, he's going, what he wants to do in this world is what he always wanted to do from the very beginning, to fill it, to rule, and to reign. And he wants to do that through each and every one of us, doesn't he? Um, so it's more than just making babies, isn't it? It's the filling and multiplying that, that fruitful Eden picture is what it looks like when the Spirit of God touches each and every man and woman, when he fills the world with himself, with the very life of God, it's what it means to know Jesus. <laughs> it's to be what we were always meant to be. Um, we like to think of ourselves as we call things like the new creation and the new humanity. Um, but I've started to come to the conviction that it's the old humanity, that the new humanity was humanity filled with death. And we are the humanity we were always meant to be when we know God himself. Um, and that's all to say in finishing that I think this story, as difficult as it may be, and there's lots of things to see, I think, that I didn't get into here today, so I challenge you to go read the story for yourself and, and just ask what Jesus is speaking through it. But I think one of the things at least that has for us is asking us, what are we willing to hope for? What are we willing to risk the idea of ourselves in hoping. Are we going to just think of the way that maybe, you know, uh, in terms of how things logically work, in terms of how the world works, in terms of how, um, well, the only way to get things done is to do them in a specific way. Or are we going to look up, look to the spirit of God within us and say, is there another way? Is there a way to change this world? Is there a way to see his life going out, spreading, 
and moving and creating the Eden world that was always meant to be everywhere we go. How does that look? What does that look? How does it come to be? Is it the way we've always done it? Or is there some way that maybe is more akin to the breath of life creating a child out of nothing? The breath of life creating the world out of nothing? The breath of life creating a lamb in the stead of the sun for us. So I guess my challenge for us today is to ask what posture we're in in life. Are we taking, are we reaching, are we grasping, are we fearing, or are we submitted? Are we sitting under the reign of God? Are we asking every day, Spirit, come with me, with me, touch me, make in me what you have always meant me to be so that when I go out into the world, your life <laughs> transforms and changes and moves and motivates everything happens in my life, because when you step into the picture, things change. Things do not stay the same. They don't work the way they just always do in the world, and it proves to the world that the God of life is bigger and more good than I think we give him credit for. I'm going to pray here. For Jesus... We do just come to you this day, this week, and we're in all sorts of different places. We're in all sorts of places where maybe we are going through a time where we feel like, maybe we feel like Isaac on the chopping block. Maybe we feel like Abraham, desperately trying to just do what is right. And I pray, Jesus, that we would see ourselves in the land. And when we open our eyes, we would see that Lamb of life living eternally and opening up the possibility, Jesus, the possibility of the third route, the other way, the way of life and goodness, the way of miracles, the way of impossibilities. What is impossible in our lives this week? What is impossible in this world? God, I know. And I believe that your word says that you can, you will, and you will see forth that this world changes in your name, that this world will see itself in you one day, that all the world will come to know Jesus as Lord, as King, and we will all rule and reign, fill and multiply, and have the fruitfulness and wonder and joy that you promised in the very beginning, because that is what the Jesus that we know does lives and loves and reigns in our hearts and turns us into little Edens as we go. <clears throat> Jesus, I pray that we would know you like that. We would know you in that deep place, that deep place of trusting your life above all things, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, I think we're dismissed. Thank you for being here. Bless you. Good